Hello and welcome to the NIHR Mental Health Policy Research Unit's podcast on telemental health. My name is Dr. Kitty Saunders. I'm a research associate with the Policy Research Unit, or PRU for short, and I will be your host. Later in this episode, you will also hear the voices of researchers Merla Schlieff and Dr. Una Foy. If you aren't familiar with the PRU, we are a National Institute of Health Research funded team based at UCL and King's College London. We aim to support the Department of Health and others involved in making plans for mental health services to make decisions based on good policy relevant evidence. This is one of two podcasts that we are releasing on our telemental health work. This episode synthesizes our research findings, while the other includes discussions around our results and research processes with clinicians, researchers, and one of our lived experience researchers too. If you've read our research papers and are familiar with the results, head on over to our discussion episode. So, the best place to start is probably at the beginning. What does telemental health mean? Well, telehealth more generally refers to the delivery of health-related services and information via telecommunications technologies in support of patient care, administrative activities, and health education. Telemental health refers to these approaches within mental health care settings. It can include care delivered by text messages and chat functions, but most commonly refers to telephone and video calls. We started conducting research into telemental health in 2020 right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what better time? Healthcare services as we knew them had ceased to exist, and most services were shifted online overnight. Policymakers wanted to understand, what do we already know about telemental health? And what in telemental health works for whom? And how? We conducted several studies to answer these questions, including a qualitative interview study, an umbrella review, and a rapid realist review. Our reviews synthesized evidence from the scientific and peer-reviewed literature, but our rapid realist review, which was the biggest and most complex of our studies, included data from several additional sources, including non-scientific literature, such as policy documents and input from clinician, policy, charity, and lived experience stakeholders. As you might imagine, these studies have produced a lot of results. But luckily for you, we've synthesized them. We will describe to you our four main results themes, which were derived from the Rapid Realist Review, as well as results on uptake, implementation, evidence for effectiveness and acceptability, and the economic evidence. I'm now going to introduce Merla, who will talk us through our first results theme, flexibility and personalization. So flexibility and personalization was really a key theme that we identified across all of our telemental health work. And then within this theme, three main topics emerged. The first topic relates to shared decision-making. We found that it is absolutely crucial to take individual preferences into account when offering telemental health. Some service users may struggle with telemental health, for example, due to sensory or psychological factors, and others may simply not feel comfortable talking about very personal and important things remotely. These preferences regarding telemental health can also vary greatly across service users, and they can also vary over time, actually. 
So how do we then best take service user preferences into account? Clinicians and service users should have ongoing conversations about different aspects of telemental health. And one of the first questions that clinicians should ask is whether to use telemental health at all or whether face-to-face care might actually be more suitable for a specific service user. Other things to discuss include when, how often, and how long a session should be, and also what telemental health modality to use. And when I'm talking about telemental health modality, I'm referring to phone calls, video calls, text messages, but service users might also prefer a mix of all of the telemental health modalities that are out there. And then what modality a person prefers and is best for them can also depend on multiple factors. And these factors can include whether a service user is new to a service, whether they have already established contact with a clinician or a staff member, the nature of their mental health problems, their circumstances, and then also the purpose of the session. So, for instance, some service users may be more comfortable using video calls for in-depth sessions, while they actually prefer telephone calls for more organizational aspects of telemental health. And then again, beyond these factors, personal preferences just differ across different people, and this is important to take into account and take seriously. Another topic related to flexibility and personalization that emerged was related to convenience. And we found that telemental health can offer a certain level of convenience that face-to-face care can't necessarily offer. Generally, service users really value personalized and flexible options that include a combination of different types of remote and face-to-face contacts. So clinicians and service users can also use text messages for keeping touch between appointments, for checking in, or for just sharing information. Another point related to flexibility that is really important and that I want to emphasize is that flexible use of telemental health can also help to reduce barriers to accessing mental health support for some service users at least. And this can be, for instance, the case for people with caring or work commitments or those who have problems traveling. And that can be due to various reasons, for instance, due to physical disability, due to anxiety or a lack of access to transport. The last topic that relates to flexibility and personalization addresses the fact that telemental health can really facilitate collaboration between professionals and teams. So meetings involving different teams, um, different specialists and agencies are a lot easier often to organize via telemental health compared to -to face-to-face care. And telemental health can also connect service users to a wider range of specialists and support for specific groups. So that can include support in different languages, peer support, or support for LGBTQ people who might not have access to LGBTQ groups in their own local area. And then for inpatients specifically, telemental health can be important in allowing them to stay in touch with family and friends, and also for family and friends to be involved in care if the patient, of course, wishes so. And this can be applicable in a pandemic context, but also beyond the pandemic context, so not only when there are social distancing measures. And then it also allows staff who are supporting inpatients in the community to remain in touch and to remain involved in care. 
so that it really promotes continuity of care. Thanks, Mella. Flexibility and personalization is a core results theme from this work, and you'll hear echoes of what Merla has just described through our other results themes too, so look out for those. But now, back to Merla, who's going to describe our second results theme, which is therapeutic relationship and quality of care. Trust and therapeutic relationships are important across healthcare. But these relational aspects of care are especially crucial in mental health. Using telemental health platforms, especially telephone and text messages, can really affect communication and then as a result also impact therapeutic relationship negatively. For instance, using telemental health, and again this includes phone calls and video calls, can lead to a change in visual and nonverbal cues. And these are very much needed for clear communication. When I'm talking about visual and nonverbal cues, I'm referring to things like gestures, facial expressions, postures, and eye contact. And you may have experienced that yourself after two years of pandemic, but not being able to detect these visual cues can make it a lot harder to interpret certain aspects of communication. For example, a pause in a sentence or time delays in video calls. And then this does not only impact the communication between staff and service users, but also the therapeutic relationship as well as staff's ability to conduct assessments of mental health problems. So we identified some ways to address this issue. And certain strategies include using good quality equipment, making sure that the camera is placed well so that visual cues are easier to observe, and also checking in with service users regularly regarding their experiences of telemental health and whether they potentially need any adaptations. And then also allocating some time to chat informally at the beginning of each telemental health sessions. People making first contact with mental health services may especially benefit from an initial face-to-face session, so before moving on to telemental health. But they may also benefit from more frequent subsequent telemental health sessions to establish some stability and also some trust. Additionally, staff confidence and ability to deliver good quality care, to develop therapeutic relationships, conduct assessments via telemental health can be fostered through training sessions and these can be provided by services. In addition to addressing the change in nonverbal and visual cues, We also found that providing service users with choice is crucial for the therapeutic relationship and quality of care. And I already mentioned this in the previous theme about flexibility and personalization, as you may have noticed. And that is because the importance of service user choice really is one of our key findings. Another thing staff can do to increase quality of care is to make use of telemental health enhancements, which are not always available in face-to-face care. And this can include using text messages or chats and voice activations during chat sessions. And then for children, young people, clinicians can use screen sharing to play games or to use the whiteboard. And really making a use of these strategies can not only increase the engagement of service users, but really increase the quality of care. Before I hand back over to Kitty, I want to quickly talk about staff well-being. 
staff well-being is very much linked to quality and care. So to promote staff well-being and also quality of care, services should ensure that staff use the time they save on traveling to really take breaks and reflect between sessions. There is this risk of staff doing additional work during these breaks, and services should make sure to promote work environments that focus on staff well-being and, again, actually taking breaks. So those were our first two results themes. I'm now going to describe to you our second two results themes, the first of which is connecting effectively. So we identified three minimum requirements to engage with telemental health. Those were access to a charged and up-to-date device. So that could have been a phone or a laptop that enables internet access. The second is an internet, either Wi-Fi or data or signal connection. And the third is the knowledge, ability and confidence to engage online. Some of these things might require some preparation, some adjustments and maybe even some specialised support, uh, particularly for certain groups who might struggle to meet one of these minimum requirements. We've identified some great strategies to help support, for example, device provision, Uh, We found examples of devices being provided by NHS trusts, the Good Things Foundation, schools, as well as charging lockers, which means that those devices can remain charged and usable, and also services offering the use of specific rooms on site, which have internet connection and video call capabilities, which means that people don't have to have that themselves. Strategies to support people who don't have the knowledge, ability or confidence included peer support from other service users and mentoring. It might also be helpful for services to trial contacts with service users ahead of time. Really importantly, without these criteria met, any one of them, then face-to-face sessions really need to be provided. We've identified some factors which really help to facilitate a good telemental health connection. The first is procedures for dealing with disruptions, which I think we all can relate to as being frustrating and at times quite upsetting, especially if they were to occur during a sensitive moment during an online therapy session, for example. So having procedures in place to deal with that can be really helpful. Giving people the choice of modality for their telemental health connection is also really important. So some service users might prefer video and others might prefer text messages. So providing choice around modality where possible also really helps to facilitate a good connection. Offering the use of telemental health platforms that are familiar to service users and accessible to service users is really important. We found that providing ongoing technical support and troubleshooting services really supported service users to connect with the clinician that they were working with. Finally, but probably most importantly, we identified the issue of digital exclusion and the digital inverse care law. So the digital inverse care law suggests that there are groups of people who are at risk of digital exclusion They are people who are likely to have poorer experiences of mental health problems and of mental health care and are less likely to engage with telemental health. 
The inequalities that they experience are exacerbated by digital exclusion and they're less likely to receive care and existing inequalities are likely to widen. It's really important for clinicians to be aware of the groups who are at risk of digital exclusion and to make particular efforts to reach those groups either digitally or face-to-face. These groups might include young children, people living in poverty, people living in unsafe households or with an abusive partner, those receiving inpatient and crisis care, and people with disabilities. The final theme that I'm going to describe to you and the final from our Rapid Realist review is privacy, confidentiality and safety. Perhaps not surprisingly, access to private space emerged as a really important requirement for telemental health. And we found that there were certain groups who were likely to be affected by a lack of private space. And those included young children who needed caregivers to be present during sessions, whether that's to work the technology or for their safety, people living in multi-occupancy households. And then there were additional risks for service users who were at risk from the people that they lived with. So if there were people living with abusive family members, for example, who might seek to listen in to their therapy sessions or might want to control their use of technology, those people would struggle to access telemental health safely and therefore face-to-face sessions probably needed to be made available for those people. Interestingly though, when a private space was available, telemental health sometimes provided quite a welcome sense of anonymity, particularly for young service users who were potentially conscious of stigmas attached to attending mental health care premises physically. So when private space is available, telemental health might actually be solving a problem there. So related to safety, managing a crisis might be more difficult online. Crises might be more difficult for staff to detect, respond to, manage when using telemental health. And so we found it was really important to have strategies in place to deal with these situations if they arose. So having a backup plan for re-establishing contact if it's lost, whether that's an accidental disconnection or a purposeful one, knowing where the service user is physically located ahead of time is really helpful as well to then provide access to a face-to-face crisis team who are mobile and able to attend a crisis physically face-to-face in person. A final issue around confidentiality when using telemental health is the increase in data that is being moved online when we have telemental health rather than face-to-face sessions. So it's really important for clinicians to know where the data that they are collecting is being stored and also how to delete that appropriately in line with the requirements for their service, but also in line with GDPR. So those were our final two results themes derived from the Rapid Realist Review. And I'm now going to hand over to Una, who will describe our evidence on uptake and implementation, the evidence for effectiveness and acceptability of telemental health and the economic evidence. Thanks, Kitty. 
I'm going to bring you through three themes within the findings that include uptake and implementation of telehealth interventions, some evidence around the effectiveness and acceptability of telehealth, and also looking at some of the cost-effective economic evidence. So let's start with the findings around uptake and telehealth implementation. So to begin with, what the evidence found was that worldwide, services had to rapidly adjust to offer remote forms of mental health care due to the pandemic. And during this time, it was estimated that about 70 to 80% of service users remain engaged with care after that switch to telehealth. And studies that looked at attendance found that there were either no differences or there was a fall in the number of cancellations and no-shows during this time. So this may point to the removal of barriers for individuals in terms of attendance, um, such as removing time to travel, cost of travel, and actually that some of these changes may have reduced waiting times for people. This obviously doesn't fit with everyone's experience. And the evidence finds that while initially there was this lack of change and there were limited declines in engagement, as the pandemic continued, telemental health use fell as the number of COVID cases declined in the summer of 2020. So this in part reflects that issue around preference and availability as well. So some people will prefer face-to-face compared to telemental health. So this shows that one size fits all and context really comes into play. But evidence does suggest that in some circumstances, for some people, remote working and mental health care provides benefits and that there are potentials in terms of reducing barriers through remote working that can really help individuals. And it's likely that telehealth will continue in some way and to some extent and possibly with more of a future blended model. And certainly for individuals where lack of experience of online methods has reduced as the time has gone on during COVID, we may see some of that engagement increasing for individuals. So one thing that was explored within these findings was also not just that acceptability, but also implementation. So there are some elements and strategies that were found that really supported successful use of telehealth approaches. So the first was that there was a need for ongoing support and facilitation, so either technical assistance or ongoing support through consultation for both staff and service users to be able to engage and use new technologies. It was new for many of us. The next was around providing training and modeling best practice. So things like digital champions were found to be really helpful and successful and certainly kind of being able to step through and get that support in terms of learning how to use new technologies in older adults, particularly in some of the cases and as well through digital representation within services. So the next was that there were identified benefits associated with taking into account service user preferences. So where individuals were taken into consideration, their preferences were listened to, this could remove some of those barriers. And certainly we all know that through our own experiences, whether you have your camera turned off or on and not really forcing some of those things can be really beneficial to helping people engage on their own terms. And again, I'm kind of coming back to that. The context is key. The appropriateness and effectiveness of the implementation strategy or strategies is likely to depend on the context in which the intervention is being delivered. And that brings us back to those issues around personalization, considering the needs of 
individuals when you're doing any of this work. And certain contextual factors that really kept coming up were things like, what is the clinical population you're working with? So age, diagnosis, abilities, those sorts of things coming into play. The next area that I'll bring you on to is looking at some of that evidence around the effectiveness and acceptability of telehealth. So this is really looking at those aspects around that personalization that we've just mentioned. And to begin with, what studies found was that clinicians tended to prefer face-to-face interventions, especially if they hadn't tried remote technologies before, but they do report that telehealth is acceptable. So that was in two reviews where it was, it wasn't preferred, but it was found as acceptable. And there was note of many practical benefits of using remote technology and telemedicine. It was found that the Therapeutic Alliance in telehealth is reported as comparable to face-to-face, but overall, it has to be noted that some patient groups report feeling more comfortable with face-to-face settings. So particularly within this report, we found that females from older adults and veterans preferred those face-to-face. But despite some preferences, overall patients find that they were generally satisfied with telehealth as face-to-face. So that was in seven reviews where they found they were generally satisfied with this. And there was one review that did find that initially there was skepticism among patients, as probably with many of us when we first started having to use these technologies. But this tended to dissipate following positive experiences of video conferencing. I think we can all relate a little bit to that. Teams is really weird to use at the start, but after you've used it, you become a little bit more au fait with it. So the benefits of using remote approaches included increasing accessibility by offering telemental health care to ensure that some people were able to still have face-to-face support or where they would struggle to have face-to-face support. So for people who were shielding, telehealth approaches really increase their ability to still access care where they couldn't do that face-to-face. And while studies reported generally good acceptability from service users and clinicians alike, there were a range of barriers to remote care that have to be considered and that were identified. So it was found that clinicians struggle to adapt quickly to a new way of working. We all know at the start of the pandemic, it was very fast. It was very quick and actually needing that time to learn and be supported was really important. And these barriers and challenges mean that acceptability wasn't necessarily high for everyone. And we found a few studies that reported lower levels of acceptability in clinicians and service users. And again, it comes back to that. There is no one size fits all. And while things look positive, it is important that we consider that contextual information. For some service users who found remote care acceptable during an emergency, they didn't necessarily find that as something they would acceptably continue beyond the pandemic. So again, it's similar to that uptick that individuals kind of once the pandemic died down, then wanting to go back to -to face-to-face increased. So it's not necessarily a replacement. So finally, I'm going to touch on a little bit of the cost effectiveness and the economic evidence to give a flavour of that side of things. What was found was there were results that came from 59 separate studies, four of them from grey literature and non-academic sources, and they came from across the world. So most of these studies 
to 30 of them, use something called the quality adjusted life year as a measure of disease burden. So that's something that measures both quality and quantity of life lived. And in an economic valuation, that is used to assess the value of medical interventions. And one quality adjusted life year equates to one year in perfect health. And what we found was that the results showed cost effectiveness was greater, according to this measure, um, for telehealth than it was for the comparator in 46 of these studies. Five of the studies found that the comparator was more cost effective than remote technology. And eight of the studies were found that it was very unclear. So it shows that there is a potential that telehealth is more cost effective in comparison to face to face. However, it isn't universal. So the next steps really as we come to the next stage in the pandemic is looking at these comparators of face to face compared to hybrid telehealth approaches. As we've discussed some of the benefits and the barriers that exist for telehealth, it looks more and more like there is space for a hybrid approach to allow individual contacts to come into play, to consider personalization and requirements. And we need to look at those cost effectiveness rather than the two extremes versus each other. There is still a long way to go to understand the intricacies of what works for whom in telemental health. We have identified several avenues for future research, some mentioned in this podcast and some you'll have to read about in our papers. The links for these can be found in our show notes. What is clear is that telemental health is here to stay and it's our job to make it accessible, safe and as effective as possible. Thank you so much for listening and to Merla and Una for helping me put this episode together. Please do listen to our discussion episode which is available wherever you found this podcast. A huge thank you to all the authors on our papers. It really does take an incredible team to pull together work of this quality. And a particular thank you to the lived experience researchers, whose input throughout and written commentaries always immeasurably improve our work. Please do follow The Prue on Twitter. We are on at Mental Health We'd love to know what you thought of this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.